This is The Guardian. Today, a fight is coming over who controls the moon. And it's not going to be a battle between countries. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Two thousand and one is just the greatest film ever made, and it's set in two thirds of it set on the moon. And I, when I first saw it, I was thought I'd died and gone to heaven. This is Robin McKee. I'm the science editor of the Observer. Have been so for the last forty-two years, um, and I've covered everything from AIDS to zoology or archaeology to you name it. And in that time, there's one topic that's always really grabbed him. Astronomy and space, I've got that, still got that kind of boyish sort of interest in it, and it, it, it always keeps me going. Houston, Roger, we copy, and we're standing by for your TV. I'm going to step off the land now. The moon is always there. We set foot on it now more than 50 years ago. It's easy to take it for granted, but Robin never has. The moon is special for various reasons, but one, it's the nearest astronomical body to the Earth. But I can see the footprints of my uh, boots and the treads in the fine sandy particles. The force of gravity is about a sixth of what it is on Earth. So you could have no trouble getting about. Uh, you bounce about all over the place. If you go on the lunar night, which is 14 Earth days long, it's incredibly cold. And when you go during the day, it's, you know, the sun is, is, is overhead, but there's no atmosphere to heat up. I'd like to Magnificent desolation is what Buzz Aldrin described the lunar surface. White bleached soil, and the only sign of, of life is, is when the Earth rises and hangs, hangs above the moon. It's a reminder, hanging there in the sky, it's a reminder of other worlds, and this is not the only one, but it should be a warning to us how we, you know, how we look after it. Because um, we haven't looked after our own one very well, and I hope we can do a little bit better for the other one. Over the four decades Robin's been the science editor at The Observer, humanity has been shrinking away from the moon. No manned missions, just a handful of soft landings, dwindling funding for NASA and other space organisations. But that's about to change. 
Japan is planning to land its first ever unmanned craft on the lunar surface today. This year, all of a sudden, lots and lots of rockets are headed for our closest neighbour in space, and many of them will be launched by private corporations. It's part of a deal between governments and businesses to get people back on the moon and eventually onto Mars. For now, everyone's interests are aligned, scientists and space entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. But make no mistake, Robin says, that's not going to be the case for long. And unless we get rules in place quickly, we're headed for a fight over an important question. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, who owns the moon? Robin, just last week, there was an attempt by an American spacecraft to make a soft landing on the moon for the first time in many decades. Tell me about that mission and what made it different. Five, four, three, we have ignition. Yes, it's called the Peregrine Lander, robot lander. And liftoff of the first United Launch Alliance Vulcan rocket, launching a new era in spaceflight to the moon and beyond. The interesting thing about it, it was on a private launch vehicle and it was built privately. And this is kind of represents the new way that America plans to go back to the moon, um, not using t- totally tax-funded missions as the Apollo missions were. This new wave, it's going to be private enterprise, it's going to play a major role. You might think of it as the equivalent of When the aviation industry started, it was a lot of private companies that were the pioneers. And I think NASA would like those days to come back and see a lot of individual entrepreneurs take over much of the legwork of getting to the moon. We have good hydraulic pressure on both engines, good chamber pressure on both engines, everything looking good. And this was an attempt, a soft, soft landing on the moon with a whole package of different uh, instruments. The first American space mission for more than half a century, aimed at making a landing on the moon, has run into an early technical hitch. The Peregrine One robot... Landed- Unfortunately, despite a perfect, flawless launch, it leaked fuel and it's not going to get there and it's going to burn up in the atmosphere sometime soon. OK, so this Peregrine mission to the moon failed, but... How many other moon missions are planned for this year? Dozens. Um, yeah, NASA has put 2.6 billion towards its its private enterprise. In other words, it's giving these companies money to build the rockets. It's helping them set this up. China, India, uh, Europe, all going back to the moon big time. You know, we're all lining up there. All all at the moment with uh, robot pro- probes in the in the short term. In the longer term, uh, America and Europe, and I think Canada, are cooperating on the Gateway Project, which will happen. It'll be the beginning of the colonising the moon. Why? Why this rush all of a sudden to head back there after being away from it for so many decades? We've actually sort of got a purpose for the first time. And 50 years ago, it was to, it was America getting there before the Russians, and it was a triumph of Western technology. Look how wonderful we are. This time, it's about can we build moon bases? Can we actually use the moon mm. as a, scientifically? And further that, there is the idea of using it as a base to get to Mars. And 
prime about all these things is, particularly the Martian aspect, is the input of big business. People like Elon Musk want to go to, to, to Mars and, and form a colony there. And a Mars mission? Yeah, so uh, in order to make Mars work, we, we need kind of the next generation of, of rockets and spacecraft. And we think we've got something that will enable people to move to Mars for approximately half a million dollars. Half a million dollars? Yeah. Now, that's not the job of NASA. NASA is really its, its prime purpose is to carry out science in space. And so it's trying to push all this kind of colonization onto private enterprise and get them to take over the, the, the impetus of that and let them get on with the, launching the space telescopes and things like that. So that's what's driving this new wave of going back to the moon. I want to get into the implications of private companies leading this new charge to the moon. But tell me first, why do scientists want to get there? What promise does it still hold for us? If you look at the moon, it's airless. It is an absolutely perfect encapsulation of the history of the solar system. Everything that has gone on in a, throughout the history of the solar system can lie somewhere on the surface of the moon. Uh, take the issue of water. We now think that water uh, arrived on Earth from comets from the outer edge of the solar system in a series of bombardments. Now, you, you can't tell that on Earth anymore because it's so geologically active and biologically active. We've lost that history. On the moon, which is inert, that history is there. Mm. It's probably lying at the bottom of various craters of the way the layers of ice and water landed from uh, outer space, from the outer edge of the solar system. It bombarded Earth. The record is there on the moon. It's gone on Earth. So it's like a history of our solar system just waiting to be discovered. Yes, that's one thing. Secondly, that you imagine these, these craters. Some of them have never seen sunlight. The bottom of these craters are completely sunless. And so down at the bottom, there's this ice with recording the history of the solar system uh, and, and its water, its watery history. The other thing is they are therefore incredibly cold. They're only a few dozen degrees before above absolute zero. And you put instruments down there, they will be cooled to those temperatures. Hmm. Now, that's very hard to do. And NASA does it with the James Webb Space Telescope. It has to sh it's enormous shielding to keep its infrared, very heat-sensitive instruments down at those temperatures. On the moon, you can just stick them at the bottom of a crater. That's terrific. Two great scientific advantages there. So interesting. The the things that the James Webb Telescope can do, this extremely powerful telescope that's already changing our understanding of the cosmos, you could do those things even more powerfully if you had something like it based on the moon. If we had a telescope like that on the moon, what could we potentially see from up there? Imagine the James Webb Telescope. It's up there. It six things in the infrared. Infrared radiation is absolutely perfect for looking for exoplanets, exoplanets, planets that go around other stars. And with a powerful infrared telescope, you can actually study the atmospheres of planets going around other stars. Hmm. Um, and you can do that already with James Webb if you could build something much bigger than that on the moon, taking advantage of its 
super cool craters, then you will be able to study in detail planets going around other stars. That, that gives you a chance to look for life elsewhere in the cosmos. Okay, so if you're a scientist, the upside of all this private space exploration is that you get to take this equipment to the moon, you get to do all these experiments that might not have happened if you left this all to NASA alone. I get that. But what is the interest of these private companies? Is it prestige or do they think that maybe being on the moon, exploring space is good business? They will be paid money for it by uh, by NASA. NASA will give them money to, to set up these bases. Mm-hmm. And NASA wants private industry to do it because it believes industry can keep the costs down. But at the back of the mind, you've got people like Musk and Bezos who want to see this as a, a stepping stone to Mars. And they've both said, you know, we want to go to Mars. We want to, you know, lo- launch colonies there. Now, how much private industry puts in and how much NASA puts in not for you and I to say it's, but it's there's a major drive from people like Musk to set up Martian colonies. And most people agree that you can't go to Mars straight away. You have to build a base somewhere. And a moon base might actually be cheaper and easier to run than a, a, something like the International Space Station. You have to fly your fuel, fuel up to the International Space Station. You don't if you're on the moon and you've got this water that you can electrolyze and turn into hydrogen and oxygen. You've got probably various metals. Um, So once you're on the moon, it's actually easier to build a base from then hop into Mars. Yeah, I mean, the idea of people living on the moon, living in these colonies, you're saying that's like not science fiction. That might be in our near future. Yes. um, I mean, probably uh, the first thing that will happen is they will build uh, the equivalent of the International Space Station and put it in orbit around the moon. It'll be a smaller version of the ISS. It's called Gateway, and it'll have maybe four or five modules, and it will be, if not permanently, occupied by humans semi-permanently, you know, on shifts of four four weeks on, four weeks off. Mm. And they will study the moon from this craft, and from there, they will direct the exploration of the lunar surface, looking for the resources that we've discussed, in particular, water craters, ice-filled craters, and things like that. And that is, you know, that's next decade. That's not that far away. That's so cool. What are the downsides, if you're a scientist, if you're someone invested in the health of the solar system, of allowing space exploration to be led by the likes of Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and these other private companies? I mean, just take the issue of some of the the deepest craters on on the moon. They are very, very deep and dark. But in these craters may well tell us exactly when uh, water came to Earth and water is a matrix of life and it's incredibly precious. Equally, uh, water is precious to colonists who will want to use it to drink and to turn to fuel, uh, split it up into hydrogen and oxygen and, and burn it. So... Uh, you've got that head-on collision coming there. There's another one, another good example. On the far side of the moon, it points out away from the Earth all the time. And because the, the one face of the moon is locked into ours, the one we always see on the far side, it's not touched by anything from Earth, in particular certain frequencies of radio waves. And on anywhere else near Earth, it's drowned out. But there, it's 
it's protected, and they, scientists want to build huge, big radio telescope that would point out into the solar system, out into the universe, and it would give us precious information about the very origins of the universe itself. But if you suddenly got satellites floating all around the moon, talking to each other in various radio frequencies, no matter how much you protect a certain frequency length, there will be leakage and that will damage the prospects of that instrument. Mm. So you've got lots of uh, you've got lots of crisis points coming. Hmm. So there could eventually be fights over access to water on the moon. There could be fights over satellites and radio frequencies. What I'm curious about, though, is who gets to decide in these situations? What does international law say about who gets to develop property in space? Could Amazon just buy the planet Venus one day? Who gets to claim the airspace above the moon or the craters and the ground on its surface? It's an interesting question. I don't see Venus being a very high candidate given it's one of the most inhospitable places in the, <laughs> okay. in the solar system. But I take your point, you could get an asteroid or two taken over by Amazon or, or something like that. The 1967 space Outer Space Treaty is very vague. So far, 31 nations have joined in the treaty. It says that you can't claim anything, claim a body or an area. Philip Kaiser for America. Between West and East, this is the best cooperation for a long time. You couldn't go up and do what Britain did in America, uh, you know, in the 17th century and say, I claim this crater for the, the United Kingdom. You can't do that. What it's weak about is it doesn't really say anything about what you mine and where you mine it and where you take your resources. Hmm. And this is the thing that's worrying scientists and it's such that the... International Astronomical Union has now is going to go to the UN this month and say, wait a minute, we're going to have to work out exactly where you where you mine and where you don't mine and what is a precious site. You're asking for trouble if you have a first come first served attitude, and that's basically at the moment it is a first come first served. Although you can't claim it on a colonial basis, but you could exploit the mineral resources there. I mean, you said that that Outer Space Treaty was drafted in the 60s. I wonder, could they have ever imagined back then that it wouldn't be the US or the USSR leading space exploration, but private companies led by some of the richest people on Earth? I think you're absolutely right. They never saw this coming. Coming up, why we need to get the rules right quickly and what happens if we don't. Oh, hello. Hey. Hi. It sounds like you're enjoying this episode, but if you're looking for something a little different, then Weekend might be your cup of tea. We feature the best pieces from The Guardian and Observer, from Marina Hyde and John Crace to celebrity interviews and lifestyle pieces. Listen every Saturday wherever you get your podcasts. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. 
Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. It sounds like we're in this interesting moment right now where science and commerce have struck a kind of alliance, right? Like we're allowing private companies to launch spacecraft, carrying scientific equipment. Everyone's working really well together. But one day soon and not very far off, their interests are going to start to diverge. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I think there is the scientists that I've spoken to are not uh, antagonistic about the fact that people are going to set up colonies on the moon. They see it as a cheap ticket because Musk and Bezos, they will get the prices down. We'll get to the moon much more cheaply than we we have been doing so. And they see the benefits for science there. But if there's an unrestricted gold rush, as it were, then we will lose something unless we do we think now about what it is and where it is we set up these bases, how we divvy up the craters. You know, that one's got water in it and that one's got water in it. Uh, but of the two, that one's more important scientifically. So you have the other one, that sort of thing. Hmm. And how far off are we from these clashes coming out into the open before we really have to start divvying up resources on the moon? Not, not this decade. Hmm. We were supposed to be sending humans to the moon later on this year. It's been put back a year. America isn't going to land any more astronauts on the moon for two or three years yet. Um, so we're far off even just from landing uh, one or two astronauts. Uh, before, And that's before they start thinking about building a, you know, a colony. But given the rate at which these... UN negotiations take, particularly for something as something as abstruse as space treaties as they would see it, they go they ground very, very slowly. So if unless we get on with it now, we do face trouble in the next decade. Robin, when I, I when I look at our planet, I look at attempts to balance the interests of science and people and corporations. The thing that we find over and over again is that the balance is too often tipped towards private interests. So how likely are we to get that balance right in space when we rarely get it right back here on Earth? 
I think that's a very, very good question, and I think the answer is probably very limited. I think we'll, we're having cocked up the earth, we'll probably cock up the moon quite quickly afterwards. <laughs> and and then, you know, wait for a few more decades and we'll cock up Mars as well. <laughs> but, but the point here is the time to have these discussions, the time to win the battle over who gets to control space, that time is right now. It is, exactly, and, and that is... It's interesting. They've got one of the scientists I spoke to uh, said it's only in the last couple of years that scientists have thought, wait a minute, this this business of unrestricted private enterprise in space has got its has got disadvantages, and one is the uh, huge number of satellites that are, uh, little mini satellites that are being launched, and suddenly those threaten the actual ability of astronomers to look out and look at the stars in optical wavelengths just because there's so many satellites, tiny little things whizzing about, uh, you know, to give us our internet signal everywhere we want. And they suddenly realised, oh, wait a minute, and they looked to the moon. And two years ago, this wasn't an issue, even though we knew that we were going back to the moon. And they've suddenly thought, oh, God, wait a minute. Uh, And that is what's really pressing them and why they've set up a working party at the IAU, uh, International uh, Astronomical Union, and have pressed for this meeting with the UN this month. What do you think good regulations in space would look like? What's the kind of balance you think we should be trying to strike? I think they need to have some kind of agreement or some kind of body that sets up exactly where you can build a base, where you can build a telescope, where you can build, dig for water. I I can't think of an equivalent uh, body on Earth, unfortunately. Deep sea mining is a a potential catastrophe here because there's nobody really in in charge of, of divvying up the seabed on Earth. So we're going to have to think of something quite new and something that we haven't thought about before. Well, as those regulations develop, maybe you can come back and tell us about it. Yes, if I'm spared. Robin, thank you very much. Thank you. And that was Robin McKee, the Observer Science Editor, whose coverage of the moon and other topics can be found at theguardian.com. And that's it for today and for this week. This episode was produced by Hattie Moyer and Tom Glasser. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producers were Elizabeth Casson and Phil Maynard. And we're back with you on Monday. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.